0: Previously on the British Broadcasting Century's 100 Years and 100 Minutes, for a third of a century, the BBC was the sole official broadcaster in the land. But now we reach part two of our whiz through the century, 1955 to 1987, and there's a new kid on the block, commercial television in ITV. I think one of the most deplorable mistakes ever made in public affairs was made when the
1: BBC monopoly was broken I think it was shocking
2: John Reith had left nearly 20 years earlier yet commented the
1: public by and large were satisfied with the BBC as it was before
0: the monopoly was broken anyhow when I left it
2: 1955
0: as ITV launches the BBC tries to sneak some audience away by killing off Grace Archer spoilers it's also the end of Muffin the Mule the start of Benny Hill This Is Your Life Dixon of Doc Green and the first appearance of TV chef now, Fanny Craddock.
3: We make indents with our fingers firmly all the way around, you see,
0: like that. Now, while part one contained more archive, we're treading the right side of rights. We are nothing to do with the BBC. This is entirely independently made. And so in parts two and three, expect more insights from podcast listeners, experts and those who are there. 1956 Go right back to 1922 and you hear a lot about Arthur Burroughs, first voice of the BBC. Well, he had gone to the EBU, the European Broadcasting Union, although then it was called the UIR. One of the ideas there was to unite European countries with one broadcast that could be experienced by the whole of Europe at once. And even before World War II, there had been an idea to include some kind of song contest. It wasn't Burroughs' idea, but he was incredibly behind it. Unfortunately, war came along and that put an end to that. Until now. Yes, 1950. Fifty-six Eurovision. Radio stars Elsie and Doris Waters began a sitcom called Flog It, written by future Dalek creator Terry Nation, and it was the debut of Ronnie Barker. Tony Hancock made it to television. Here's Paul Hayes. The way Hancock uses the television
4: format, how good he is at doing that occasional nod and a wink to the audience when things have broken down slightly, someone stumbled over a line and he gives that kind of knowing look and might step out of character just for a moment. So, right, come on, come on, we've got to get back into this now. And it's all the more surprising that he's so good at this when you learn that he hated doing that. He wanted to switch to doing his sitcoms single camera film without an audience because he hated that live performance aspect of it so much. And yet he was
0: so good at doing it. 1957. The Sky at Night test match special. Broadcasting for schools. Panorama broadcaster spaghetti tree hoax. The first regional news and the launch of the Today programme. Former guest of ours, Justin Webb.
1: I think radio does open up the world in a different way with an energy. I suppose. So for that reason, um, it it did the job for me. And I think it still does the job today.
0: It was also the end of The Toddler's Truce. And here's more from academic Dr Amy Holdsworth, whose book is on living with
3: television. The Toddler's Truce ran until 1957 when broadcasting closed down between six and seven p.m. It would help parents and carers get their children to bed. So it'd be a cue for bedtime. (laughs) So rather than having the distractions of the TV, they could they could focus on getting the children to bed instead. So that's a kind of really powerful example of the well, the power of broadcasting and the power of, of the kind of state at that point to govern the kind of temporal schedules of people's lives in the home.
0: In 1958, a certain TV show hit our screens. They started a tradition that my daughter here has continued to this day. Hello, daughter. Hello. Now, we put something in the post today, didn't we?
3: Yes, we did. Could you uh,
0: describe what it is and what it's for? Uh,
3: well, it was a letter to blue peter and it was for them to see because i like my blue badge
0: our blue badge and do you have a badge already for blue peter
3: yes i've got my green badge
0: you've got a green badge and this is after a blue badge and uh, children have been doing this since 1963 nearly 50 years of this
3: yeah it was it's really cool
0: so another 50 years of blue peter badges do you think
5: yeah probably
0: at the start of Grandstand, Richard Dimbleby demonstrates Vera, which is an early way of recording television programmes. When he shows us how it works on TV, he instantly plays back footage of himself. It's a modern miracle. Speaking of which, St. Clair of Assisi is made patron saint of television by the Pope. Oh, and it's the start of the radiophonic workshop that made a veil.
3: 59 and the Navy luck was first afloat With John Pertwee, Dennis Price and Leslie Phillips on the boat Soon Price jumped ship and Stephen Murray dept Left hand down a bit, then crash the crew was quite inept The start of the Ken Dodd
0: Show. On that, from Doddy to Diddy... David Hamilton. The Ken Dodd
6: story was that um, I remember we went there on the first day of rehearsals and I stood next to Ken who's probably about half a foot taller than me and he uh, the only people there were there was no audience there were makeup girls props boys cameramen and he looked at me and he said uh, what do you think did he David so um, everybody everybody chuckled and in fairness to him he took me to one side afterwards and he said do you mind me calling you that he said because if you mind I won't do it anymore. Uh, He said, but if you don't mind, he said, I think I better warn you, it might stick. (laughs) Well, I don't mind. I've been stuck with it now for uh, how many years is it? It's been a while. Yes. 1960.
0: A question mark doodled on the back of an envelope becomes the blueprint of television centre. And having been turned down by one of the finest producers in the north of England, Olive Shapley on the BBC, Coronation Street finds its way to ITV. I don't think it will last. 1961. Points of view. And when the powers that be relax the rules on what can be broadcast on a Sunday evening. In other words, something can be broadcast. TV exec Donald Bavistock has an idea. Some favourite sing-along hymns from our youth songs of praise some of the early songs of praises the locations were chosen based on where the football was played the day before yeah so Okay. Right. Started. i think it was the first one was in the ob trucks
4: are in cardiff or somewhere mm. and they mm. thought well we've got these vans here why don't we you know do something yeah. else
7: steptoe and son is very influential it was remade in america as samford and son and did oh, hundreds. hundreds of episodes they did loads them. more didn't they yeah, yeah and it when one of the characters left it became Sanford Arms and then right. that became Sanford. So you know it went for a long time. And sixteen of the original steptoe scripts were actually reshot almost word for word.
0: So that was like the office of its day in yes. a way.
7: And it was also remade in Sweden as Albert and Herbert. Visually very similar. I can't really understand what's happening, so I don't know if all the jokes are the same or not.
0: (laughs) Uh, I don't know what you dirty old man, is in uh, Norwegian, but something. (laughs) And then 1962, TW3, otherwise known as That Was, The Week That Was.
7: Fantastic show, beyond the fringe movement, that whole satire boom. Frost, whilst making the Frost Report, the follow-up to TW3, was concording across the Atlantic, the American version of That Was, The Week That Was, the first episode of which starred Gene Hackman.
0: His way of corralling the comedy writers um, of the Pythons and, you know, Barry Cryer and the goodies. Yeah, I'd get them all together and work at. you should write with you and you should write with you and then go forth and make brilliant comedy troops in the decades to come. It was also the year that a high-ranking exec, Eric Mashwitz, who was at the BBC in the golden years of radio, he'd been to Hollywood to write a Nightingale sang on Barclay Square and he'd come back to television. Here's Paul Hayes.
4: He was the assistant and advisor to the controller of programmes. And in early 1962... Eric Mashwitz asked the BBC's script department to look at the possibility of the BBC making a a science fiction programme. The very first document in the Doctor Who file is the script department's report that they prepared. Eric Mashwitz, I I was able to go to the BBC Written Archive Centre at Cavisham and opening this file that's got those original documents in and right at the start of the file is this report that Eric Mashwitz commissioned. The following year, the whole process of Creation
0: of Doctor Who kicked off, as it were. And 1963, the launch of Doctor Who. Russell T Davies
4: once wrote that in the future, Doctor Who will be the case study for how British television drama was made because it is... Almost certainly the most studied British television drama series ever. There are books and articles and documentaries on almost any aspect of its history that
0: you care to mention. Your book is called The Long Game, 1996-2003, the inside story of how the BBC brought back Doctor Who.
2: But that is in the future or the past. Or perhaps for the Doctor. It doesn't matter.
0: 1964. The end of the children's hour, finally. But maybe the children have moved on because it's now the start of Top of the Pops. Also, we're at a crossroads. It's crossroads. And Vision on. The Wednesday play, Play School, Horizon and BBC Two is launched. Unfortunately, there's a power cut and a kangaroo stuck in a lift. An auspicious start. 1965. The first black children's TV presenter, Paul Danker. Magic Roundabout and Jackanory. Till death is due part. Which is the first
7: Alf Garnet? Uh, sickness and health till death
0: is too yes, part. part for richer for poorer uh, no, that's, <laughs> they never got that far did they
7: but that was offered to itv halfway through yeah. its run part of a, a big negotiation package for better recompense for the mm. writers and things
0: he's charles huff dennis main
1: wilson at the time when i was working with him he was working on a program called till death is Two part he had of course been a radio producer before his man who started the goons and he's probably the greatest radio producer that ever was. Remember him telling me why Dandy Nichols left left this due part. Basically, the reason being she couldn't stand Warren Mitchell, great actor but a bit of a pain. William Hardcastle on the World at One when the World at One was in its pomp and suddenly people were using a thing called the telephone to just do live interviews with people around the world and no one thought it was really amazing and all of that sort of stuff I was aware of as a child because I was desperate to get out of my circumstances and suddenly realised you know the outside world was there and I also realised that I wanted to be part of it.
0: And helping children dream about science for many a year, tomorrow's world. It certainly had an impact on TV presenter Gareth Jones. I did actually end up presenting Tomorrow's World very briefly. I presented the last series,
1: which is great. I I cried on the day that I got given that job. I broke my heart because all my presenter heroes were Tomorrow's World presenters. William Woolard, James Burke, Raymond Baxter. Uh, These are the people who... I copied when I became a TV presenter. I intoned like William Wollard. I thought like Raymond Baxter. Those are my models. So I have a lot to thank them for. So to finally become a presenter of their show some 30 years later, perhaps. Wow. Great moment for me. That's uh, heart-
0: heartbreakingly happy. 1966 will, of course, be known for the year of the World Cup. It was also the year Match of the Day launched. Cathy come home at one end of the spectrum, the money programme at the other, and Terry Wogan's first show for the BBC. And an early producer for Wogan there on the BBC Light
5: programme was Johnny Beerling. Wogan was working for RTE, Radio Telefice, And they didn't mind him working on the BBC as well, but they wouldn't give him sufficient time off to come over every week. He was doing a programme called Midday Spin. Only the BBC could come up with a title <laughs> Midday Spin. Anyway, an hour of gramophone records. <laughs> um, anyway, so they said, well, look, every fourth week you'll have to go over to Dublin and, and produce Terry from there. So I, I would trot over on the plane and, and meet Terry. We would go out round the pubs of Dublin, doing research, of course. Cool. And then in the, in the morning we would, do it from the studios of RTE, and it was a very similar setup to the BBC. They had people play the records, people to mix the sound. But Terry was, you know, very inventive and a clever presenter. And of course, he was soon uh, offered a contract on a more permanent basis for the old BBC light programme, as it was then.
0: In 1967, the BBC commissioned a song for the world's first ever live satellite international television link-up. That song was written by the Beatles and it was All You Need Is Love. This was a year of changing music on the radio. Goodbye, Home Service and the Light Programme. There we end broadcasting in the Light Programme, not just for today, but uh, as it seems, forever. Goodbye, Home
2: Service. Two of the best words in the British language. And still, I'm
1: sure...
0: The only answer you can give to the question, what is Radio 4? BBC Radio turns into Radios 1, 2, 3 and 4. Ten seconds to go before
2: Radio 1, Tony Blackburn and Radio 2, Paul Hollingdale. Stand by for switching, get tuned to Radio 1 or 2, 5, 4, 3. Radio 2, Radio 1, go.
6: The voice of Radio 1.
0: We've spoken to three people who were there that day. Producer Johnny Beerling, presenter Emperor Roscoe and singer of The Settlers, Cindy Kent.
5: I'm one of the only, I think probably the only person for the BBC that went out to see the pirate ships. Mm. I told my boss I wanted to go and have a look and he said, I'd rather not know about that. <laughs> really? <laughs> so I managed to wangle a trip out. I met people like Tony Blackburn, Keith Skews, Kenny Everett. Even John Peel was there, I think, at the time. What amazed me when I saw it was that everything was what we call self-operation, self-op, as it is now in local radio as you know, but in those days they would play their own records, play in the jingles. So of course one of the big problems once um, Radio One was set up, there was nowhere in the BBC where people could play their own records, except in the continuity studios. Where announcers had the ability to play a record in the event of a awful breakdown or something, yes. you know. So we had to modify continuity studios and design them so that they could do this self-op, self-operation. A fellow showed up from Radio One who was a producer, and uh, he said, "Ah, uh, you should come, and uh, we're launching Radio One, an answer to the pirates, and we'd like you to be on it." They brought in the Marine Offences Act, which was making it illegal to service the the ships. Tony had cleverly come ashore six months before Radio 1 started, at least. I had got to know him, and they asked me if I'd like to produce the first ever programme. I didn't realise how historic that was at the time.
3: I believe the Settlers
7: were the 12th record to be played, a song called Major to Minor. It's a momentous occasion. It was like, wow, this is incredible, because up until then, you know, we'd knew about pirate radio, of course they played all our stuff, which was lovely, and the BBC played stuff that you went in and did. But this was like, oh Radio One, wow, this you know, it was it was well, it was history, wasn't it really?
0: Elsewhere in nineteen sixty seven, the first colour television on BBC Two, Trumpton just a minute, the Test Guard girl, Carol Hersey, and BBC Radio Leicester becomes the first local station. Nineteen sixty eight sitcom writer James Carey. For a while I used to put on Twitter, every single week
4: without fail, a screen grab of the best rated comedy on BBC Channel 4 and Channel
0: 5 and it was always always Dad's Army someone who actually joined the stage show of Dad's Army when it was still on television you may know him from Heidi High it's Jeffrey Holland
1: Jimmy rang me up and said would I like to play Walker I think he's bit his arm off you know and so yes i played play Walker as well and I was a member of
0: Captain Bannering's platoon for six months wonderful so you're on the stage then with Arthur Lowe and on the measure
1: and- I've done Ian uh, Lavender yeah mm. Uh, John Laurie didn't do the show because he was rather old then and uh, his wife wasn't well, so he stayed at home. And Arnold Ridley, actually, who who always looked about 90, actually turned 80 on the tour. I mean, he was a professional old man, Arnold Ridley. (laughs) Wonderful man. He was a
2: sweetheart, absolute sweetheart. More from Geoffrey Holland soon on the podcast.
0: 1969. Letter from America. The first all-night BBC television broadcast in Apollo 11.
1: Right throughout my childhood, years the most important thing for me
3: was the moon landing the moon landings in the summer of 1969 rita chakrabarti i was four and a half i have a very strong memory of my father sitting me down in front of our old black and white well they were all black and white then uh, black and white tv <laughs> saying look at this you've got to watch this you've got to remember this and i did mm. and i do
5: alec
7: reed
1: went to television presentation and my main claim to fame there was sitting in the international control room for 24 hours, didn't leave the chair for 24 hours, uh, relaying the pictures of the first moonwalk around Europe as they came in. And I was supposed to have been relieved after four hours or six hours or whatever. It was an all night shift, but everybody else was sitting in the office glued to the screen and wouldn't come and read me. Oh no, I bet. Interestingly enough, the sound and video arrived out of sync. um, The pictures arrived before the sound did. Oh, right. Time I had to get up and put my hand on a tape recorder and sort of adjust Uh, so that they go more or less in sync again and
0: then sit down.
3: It was the first major world event that I do remember.
0: Nationwide, the BBC Globe, IDENT comes in, BBC One gets colour and Monty Python's Flying Circus. They were very eager to have David Hamilton.
6: It was the beginning of Monty Python, very early days of it, and somebody from the show had said, what we'd like to do is we'd like to have the Thames logo and their announcer, David Hamilton, introduce the programme. So I went down, I met them all, Cleese and Palin and the rest of the gang. And they were all lovely, you know, very welcoming. And then I sat down at the microphone and I read out the words. Good evening. There are some terrific programmes for you tonight on Thames. But first, here's a load of old rubbish on the BBC.
0: 1970, the first same-sex kiss on UK television, Play for the Day, in religious radio circles, Pause for Thought and Thought for the Day, You and Yours, and the start of Open University as 1970 becomes 1971, bringing us the two Ronnies and the Generation Game, oh yes, a golden era of Saturday night television. It's also the time that the Blue Peter time capsule was buried.
2: And the launch of Pebble Mill. An early editor was Morris Blisson.
5: I used to file stuff for the local BBC newsroom, Birmingham, Purple Mill. In its infancy, brought out evening programmes like Midlands Today and Point West. And and, uh, I I became a a sub-editor on one of those. We had skateboarding ducks and things like that.
0: 1972, Pebble Mill launches afternoon schedules, the start of news round, and Terry Wogan joins Radio 2 at breakfast. He's there from 1972 to 84, and then again from 1993 to 2009. And here's a loyal listener, Reverend Cindy Kent.
7: He was talking to me. And I know you probably think he was talking to you, but I'm sorry, Paul, he was talking to me. And I I felt that whenever I listened to him.
0: Cindy Kent went on to become one of our first commercial broadcasters. As in 1973, we gained LBC and Capital Radio. Suddenly, BBC Radio had competition. Over in Tellyland, though, we had That's Life, Last of the Summer Wine, The Wombles, Some Mothers Do Have Them, Open All Hours, Porridge as well. A glorious year for sitcom. But back in Radioland, Johnny Beerling came up with something rather special. The Radio
5: One Roadshow. We used to go on camping holidays in France. And we're down in the south of France one year and I saw all these people with the little aluminium chairs trotting across the campsite. A Pantechnicon with a, a side that let down and formed a stage. And they did a show which was a mixture of live music and records and comedians in French, which I didn't understand very well. <laughs> and I thought if we could travel a show like this French one around the countryside, BBC obviously didn't own any sort of vehicle like that. And somebody said, well, there's a guy down in Bristol, John Miles, who's. He said uh, my brother Tony could build one. Anyway, he he built the first one, and we took it down to Newquay. And I think it was 1973 was the first one. Alan Freeman was the disc jockey, and it worked marvellously. That was my idea, because I wanted people to get away from that notion that it's that BBC down there in London. It's not part of us. I wanted to give them a sense of ownership. You know, I'm proud to say it ran it for something like 27 years.
0: 1974.
2: Engineer Norman Green. The BBC came up with a proposal for CFAX, and the IBA came up with a proposal for Oracle at the time. We at ITV did quite a lot of research with people who had bad eyesight. I came up with the idea of making the characters double height.
0: I remember the double-height characters.
2: Right, yes. well, double-height characters... And that's you,
0: you're the double-height yeah,
2: character. Yeah, I had the patent on that, yes.
0: 1975, sitcom's golden era continues with The Good Life and Faulty Towers. Brian Redhead joins today. The news headline starts to become the longest-running topical comedy show anywhere in the world. And in fact, I can tell you that was my first writing credit. I thought if I can get a job on this, it will never get cancelled. And I finally got my first ever joke sold onto what turned out to be the last ever episode of the News Headlines. But it started then in 75. It was also the year of a show that, alas, we don't remember too fondly, Jim will fix it which is troublesome for the daughter of the director, who had such happy memories in spite of its host. Here's Belinda Campbell.
3: My dad was the director of Jim Will Fix It. He was the director in the eighties. And so as a kid, I used to go to Jim Will Fix It all the time and to the studios. I got to meet all my favorite pop stars. I had a great time. It was magical.
0: The people who are still around from the gym will fix it. Yeah. They must have. Again, it must be a very confusing...
3: Yeah, I think they feel... I was quite uh, protective over them at the beginning. So I remember writing to Roger Ordish saying, don't you ever forget how much hard work you put into this and don't let it undo that. But once they were proud to speak about their career, you can't see into people's minds. You might see something in their eyes, but people can disguise things so well, especially if their neck's on the line.
2: That full interview from Paul's other old podcast, a Paul Carenza podcast. Details in the show notes. In
0: 1976, I, Claudius, on the screen. It was the start of Roman numerals in television credits.
2: Next, McMilks I mean, M-C-M-L-X-X-V-I-I. I mean...
0: 1977. Ah, the Morecambe and Wise Christmas special. Will we air-see-the-like-of-those-viewing-figures-for-light-entertainment-ever-again? Also, the beginnings of Morph. And launched by presenters, including Angela Rippon, it's the start of Top Gear. Now, I worked on Top Gear for a little while. If you'd like to know the identity of the Stig, I can tell you it is... 1978. Finally, the end of the black and white minstrels after 20 years.
7: And Grange Hill. Chicken Man, the theme. the bow, 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 Is that called by, Chicken Man? Yeah, it's by Alan Hawkshaw, but here's the best fact about that. Go on, Simon it, Dunn. At the same time, it could be heard... On ITV, what? the show, Give Us a Clue. The Give Us a Clue used that tune. Ever so slightly rearranged, slightly different pace from 1979 to 1981. So if you were a kid running around in the late 70s, early 80s, and you heard that tune... You might have run in.
0: Expecting to see. Expecting to see a giant
7: <laughs> sausage. But no, you would just see... Yeah, Lionel Blair
0: doing... I, I should now insert some sort of Lionel Blair innuendo that, <laughs> I'm sorry I haven't a clue, was so fond of using. It was March 1978. Andrew Barker. I was a diligent reader of the Radio Times and a member of the BBC Listening Panel. A new late-night comedy series was scheduled to broadcast on BBC Radio 4. The weekly sheet that I'd received for the Listening Panel also featured this programme. The sheet, filled in by its tooth or so members requested the listener if they chose to hear the program to rate how much they enjoyed it. A five point scale from A plus to C minus was used for the listener's response. I listened to that first episode and gave it a rating of A and wrote that I had enjoyed it very much. For the following five episodes I rated them all A plus and noted that this was the best radio comedy series I had ever heard. That series was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. With all its various repeats over the
5: years, it became the most popular radio comedy series of all time.
0: 1979, Life on Earth, Radio 2 is the first BBC station to go 24 hours. Question Time with Robin
7: Day and To the Manor Born, Simon Dunn. The most watched TV show of the 1970s. No. If you believe the BBC, it got 27 million. Oh. Uh, the official Jigta ratings put it at 24.6. It started at the height of the ITV strike, ah. which had shut down the ITV. TV channels. Mm. It was running against a caption card on ITV apologizing for the strike and no service which was still getting ratings of 1 million <laughs> viewers. <laughs> really? People wow. leaving their tellies on perhaps or they might well, have enjoyed the music.
1: My name is Charles Huff. I used to produce and direct programs for BBC Television Science Department. I series produced a
0: series called The Great Egg Race with Professor Heinz Wolf as our presenter. Totally eccentric program. A great fun to do. The Antiques Roadshow, and in more political circles, Panorama covers developments with the IRA in Carrick Now, this angers the government, and losing his job over it, Roger Bolton. Did the BBC and the government occasionally seem to come into orbit with each other? It did. I other. mean,
1: then, I don't, you know, when I got fired for a weekend, and that was over a programme that was never completed, we're making a film about the origins of the IRA, and one of our teams, Jeremy Paxman, actually, filmed the IRA taking over a village in Northern Ireland. Now, they may have done it actually just for publicity. They may not. We didn't have a chance, though, to decide whether to show that material or not. And I'm not sure if we would have shown it. The BBC was in a weak position, desperately needed a license fee increase. was negotiating with government. That always gives the government a lot of power. Basically, they wanted the BBC to not ask difficult questions. Well, what's the point about the BBC if you don't ask difficult questions?
0: Well, that was what we tried to do. but well, it always gets you in trouble. In 1980, Children in Need gains Pudsey Bear. In other TV animal news, it's the start of Watchdog, we gained Newsnight and Heidi,
2: hi! Ho dee ho. Here's Geoffrey Holland on Paul Shane.
0: They searched a long time before
1: they found Ted Bovis. Jimmy saw him on Coronation Street, quite by chance, and rang David up and said, David, are you watching Corrie? He said, no, I said, put it on quick. I think we've found Ted Bovis. And there he was playing Alf robert boss in Corrie. It was perfect, and it was a the sort of rough diamond they were looking for, you know, with the same northern accent. And, and I met him for the first time, and they already had booked me, Spike. Mm. The, the chemistry was instant. <laughs> All the years we worked together, we were together for 18 years altogether. You know, there was just a
0: magical ping, something went click. 1981, a simple wedding between someone called Charles and someone called Diana breaks viewing records on the radio Lord of the Rings and on children's television postman Pat and in sitcom land. Nothing brings our country together like a sitcom.
4: Only Fools and Horses matters, doesn't it? That is the great sitcom of the of the English language is Only Fools and Horses. that won Britain's best sitcom uh, 20 years ago. There's been some other good shows now and then, but the the BBC sitcom, they really have churned out an awful lot of them. I don't think anything's come along, which would make us knock that off the top spot. My name's Neil Jackson and my favourite moment of the British broadcasting century is 4.40pm on Tuesday the 2nd of November 1982. This was the moment when Britain got a fourth television channel imaginatively named Channel 4. It's hard to believe in the modern multi-channel world. But this was the first new channel for 18 years. And to 10-year-old me, it was a very big deal. That moment when the 4-Note fanfare played for the first time and the multi-coloured blocks came together to form a three-dimensional number four will
0: live in my memory forever. The launch of the BBC microcomputer, listen with mother, ends. The Falklands War starts and there's controversy over the BBC not calling them our troops, but... British troops trying to keep an objective distance. And in light affair, Madder Jaffrey starts cooking up some curries. 1983, the launch of the first breakfast television show, Breakfast Time.
2: Morris Blisson.
5: Breakfast news, I helped to set up. And we only set it up in a rush because ITV were going to do TVAM. So we
0: thought we'd better get in first. And we did by two weeks. And I have a cunning plan it's the launch of Blackadder. Former BBC employee George Orwell famously wrote of 1984, and it turned out to be a rather serious year. It was the launch of Crime Watch, and Michael Burke gave a very serious BBC news report from Ethiopia. That meant in 1985, Live Aid. And one of the people who helped make that happen, Johnny Beerling.
5: 1985, I was in charge of Radio 1. The idea was that we would do the sound, but of course, Bob Geldof was very much behind the scenes. One of the problems with the BBC was that it had not allowed its airwaves to be used to, to fundraise. And Gerdoff's attitude was, if I can't get the money, then you're not getting it. get rights to broadcast.
0: In other fundraising news that year, it was the start of comic relief. BBC IDents gained a new globe. We had Children's BBC and we had Victoria Wood as seen on television. It's also the start of do, 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 do EastEnders. I was working in the presentation department in Studio B
1: when Mike Fish did the very last magnetic rubber weather. uh, That was in February 1985. And he actually said, this is the last time you'll be seeing these metal symbols sliding down the chart, because tomorrow we'll be all electronic. And the crew all went into the studio, into into Pres A, and said, Mike, um, can we have a couple of weather symbols as a souvenir? And we were allowed to take two each. But there were hundreds of them. I mean, there were drawers full of those things. And then recently, watching the Antiques Roadshow, there was a, a, a chap on there who had about 50 of them. And I was astonished because we'd been allowed to have two each.
0: <laughs> and apparently he'd just written to BBC Presentation and said, now that you're not using them, uh, may I have them? Yes. And they were all bundled up and sent off to him. So he has one of each. They've lived on my fridge door for the last... Um, I could have I was thinking the fridge is the perfect place for them if uh, the exhibition. 1986. The start of Casualty. The start of Neighbours, which unbelievably has just been recommissioned. EastEnders had a very serious Christmas special from Den and Ange, and there was a very serious episode of the Late Late Breakfast Show with the sad death of Michael Lush. And a small part of broadcasting history, perhaps, but Alan Stafford remembers as a certain unusual guest host on Radio 4's...
3: Midweek with Libby Purvis. Radio 4 at its most anodyne. Until one Wednesday in 1986. Good morning. My name is Arthur Mullard and I'm taking over from Libby because she's gone away for a bit. Libby's producer was destined for greater things. Victor Lewis Smith would be responsible for some of the edgiest comedy on radio and TV. So while Libby Purvis was on holiday, he decided to give Radio 4 a culture shock. Rather than a voice in Arthur's ear, Victor was frequently heard on talkback, attempting to steer Arthur back to the straight and narrow. Other guests were Roy Hudd and Barry Cryer, so raucous laughter was guaranteed throughout. The show finished with Arthur Mullard's rendition of I Did It My Way, accompanied by a male a cappella chorus. Arthur finished at least eight bars before everybody else. The whole show was a messy celebration of anarchy and chaos, and I loved every minute. In
0: 1987,
2: Jenny Murray joins Woman's Hour.
0: Michael Fish didn't predict a hurricane.
2: Princess San is on a question of sport. Oliver reads on something, on Aspel and Company.
0: We were going for gold, we were going live.
2: The end of the two Ronnies, but the start of Fry and Laurie. And
0: French and Saunders.
2: And, to me, to you, it's Chuckle Vision. And yes, we are going to end this third of a century on the Chuckle Brothers deal with it.
0: This has been 100 Years and 100 Minutes Part 2. In Part 3, we'll journey from 1988 to 2022 and see the BBC find its feet in a new digital landscape, racing through to the end of this British broadcasting century. Presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza, original music by Will Farmer. Archive material is public domain as far as we know. BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation, all rights reserved. If you like what we do, patreon.com slash supports this podcast, or share it. Stay informed, educated, and entertained.
6: And join us next time for the 100 Years in 100 Minutes special. Part 3.